2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, a host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Nicole von Germetten about her new book, Death in Old Mexico, the 1789 Dongo Murders and how they shaped the history of a nation. Hello and welcome back to the show, Nicole.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here again.
2: Now, before we talk about this book uh, in great detail, you mentioned it a little bit on the last time I got to interview this spring. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book?
1: Yeah, um, I've been a historian here at Oregon State University for about 20 years. I've been in administration for about six years, but luckily um, I had uh, a lot of um, photographs of uh, documents from the um, National Archive in Mexico City that I could work on during COVID. So I kind of hunkered down on those when I didn't have to come into the office. And this was one of them. And it uh, this was a, a whole set of documents that one of our um, uh, graduated under previous undergrads here at Oregon State um, photographed for me. And similar to, to what I said on the last podcast and, and all my work, it just sort of builds off of each other. So this is a case that um, really I came to know more about as I was working on the night watchman that we talked about earlier, um, in, in this year. Um, so, so yeah, it just, it just seemed natural. Uh, and I didn't think I, I asked the student to photograph this case for me, um, in Mexico city. And when I finished my night watchman book, um, the enlightened patrolman that came out last fall, 2022, um, I thought, oh, there's really no place for it in that book because I, I didn't want to go off track. I mean, I, I could have thought, incorporate it somehow, but it just didn't seem to be on track. And so then, you know, I told my student, his name is Ismael Pardo. He's at Michigan now uh, working with Ken Mills. I told him, um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't end up using all those documents you photographed for me you know, whatever it was, 20, uh, 2019 summer. And he was like, Oh no. And then, you know, I was like, as COVID is extending and extending, and even with the administrative job and teaching over zoom and all that, you know, I still, I guess there was just some time in the early mornings to kind of look back at, at these photos and, and and it started to shape up as a, as a new book. Um, but a, a really different type of type of book, which I know we'll get into. And, um, yeah, I think that covers, uh, I think that covers
2: your question. I really liked reading these two books, like you said, your your last one on The Night Watchman, uh, together this spring, because I think in a classroom setting, we often try and tell students people can look at the same documents and come to different conclusions or tell different stories. And I love these two as a matching set, that the same sort of archive or the same sort of documents can lead to very different tonally stories and not necessarily contradictory conclusions, but different conclusions so it's a great teaching example, I think, of that.
1: Yeah, and definitely if a person you know, was able to teach a specialized course on crime in Mexico or, or the history of law enforcement in Mexico or something of that nature, or even modern Mexico, which I've taught here at Oregon State, um, it, it, they should fit together really well. Uh, I mean, in fact, I'm teaching a crime and history class right now, and I am combining them. And there's also a lot of other sources to include in that kind of give you the, this panorama of sort of Atlantic law enforcement in the, in the late 18th century or around the year 1800 that I think can be really fruitful for students and, and engaging for them. So that is, that is an intention. And yeah, there are different sides of, of the same coin, really, for sure.
2: Now, if we look at the book, we're going to start with the, the introduction like we always do, but there are a number of very interesting points that are made in your introduction, in part because this is creative historical writing. Um, as we go through each part, people will, will see how this differs, I think, from a, a typical monograph uh, in ways that I think were very fun and accessible, and I, I was just having so much fun imagining running this in a classroom setting. Uh, so let's talk about some of these interesting framing points. First, you spend some time thinking about space and visibility of violence in Mexi- in Enlightenment Mexico City, as this book revolves around a particular murder case. And you mentioned the importance of the Zocalo and the fact that the action of this book and the execution of the murderers both take place a lot in this central square. So could you talk a little bit about the spectacle of violence? I know you get to that in one of the parts of the book later on, but could you talk a little bit about the spectacle of violence in the history of Enlightenment Mexico City?
1: yeah and and i'll maybe i'll cover this a little bit here and a, a little bit later but and i hate to all of a sudden right it's so early in our podcast become a little mystical <laughs> but but to me it was just fascinating and, and fortunately i i took a look um because of this idea of the Sokolo as this center of, of violence over the centuries i i fortunately took a little look. And of course, I'm not the first person to think of that. Great, great thinkers like Octavio Paz and Carlos Fuentes and and other uh, prominent Mexican thinkers, writers, fiction and nonfiction, have thought of that already. And there's much material to to think about there. But to me, it's like the first one I realized that the the murder site was just the the street behind the cathedral. And that's the side of the Socoló where the Templo Mayor was it's really a radius of, of maybe 200 meters. And, and so it's a very small area. And so what I'm thinking about that, again, I, I hope it's not too woo woo, but it's like, this is also, you know, the site uh, of where we have, um, you know, uh, Aztec rituals um, going on beforehand. And then, you know, the, the murder is, is a, a little bit less direct, but the fact that, the the viceregal government under the Spanish monarch is conducting all of these judicial executions in that in that plaza. You know, just a little bit, I guess, to the east of the Temple Mayor it is just astonishing to me. And I know we'll talk about that more. So I don't want to cover that too much. But the location is just an epicenter of of kind of um, a sort of uh, sanctioned violence in different ways. You know, in very different ways. Uh, of course, the murders are not sanctioned. But again, that's a little bit more of a coincidence that it's right there. But, you know, there's really broader themes. A, and I, um, I, in my first draft of the book, I did go a little more imaginative in that it, and that um, and one of the press readers, um, who's a, a great writer uh, herself, um, uh, you know, suggested, you know, that's a little she, I think her word was like, it's a little essayistic. It's a little speculative. So I pulled back a little bit on that. But I certainly want my readers, like, I, I feel that um, when I looked at the questions that, that you sent me beforehand, it's like, I, I want to be able to open the door to readers to to use their imagination a bit, because although I did try to write a very imaginative and even somewhat speculative book, I, I still have to work within some norms of the discipline. You know, it's not a fiction writer and it's not a, a mass market true crime. So I really want to encourage readers and maybe even I'll be a little bit more speculative and imaginative in this interview because I would want them to think more about these connections and these, the, the theme of violence in a, in a very broad way and where you can really go with that. Um, but yeah, and I do hope we talk more about, about that in the questions that are coming up.
2: <laughs> I, I really think it's a success in that way that it opens up thematic thought and conversation in a way that I think many monographs maybe either studiously avoid or just don't touch upon because of the norms of, of historical writing. And I think that this book opens those up. So just as an example, when you're laying out the geography of the Zocalo and thinking about this place of violence, I mentally thought from the last time I was at the Zocalo, how I would have walked to the murder scene and I would have walked right past what's now the museum to inquisitorial torture. Um, that's right next to the Zocalo. And so the the, the role of the ongoing spectacle of violence um, was accessible in a way that I, I think, uh, a more traditional monograph approach maybe would have missed. the One of the next major ideas that you point out is that many of your most important primary sources are produced by a particular person that you introduce in the introduction, a person named Jose Gomez, who's from, I think you said, Granada, Spain, and that these discussions come up in his memoir. Now, of course, there's court documents and other documents you use as well, but I thought this figure was interesting and a way to get into the sort of methodological questions that you get into in the introduction. This person, Gomez, witnessed over 250 executions, and I'm a person that studies violence and thinks about violence a lot, and this still shook me. Of, of what this means about a person's viewpoint and, and world, and I presume that he also describes some of these other 250 executions in, in this writing or other writings. What sort of exposure, or was this sort of exposure to state, state violence normal for this time period? So, how how normal or out of the norm is Gomez here, and how did Gomez compare the Dongo murders and ensuing executions to the sort of other events that he's witnessed?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I found that really interesting, um, that I think I'll answer the second question first, you know, his, what I tried to do when I introduced his description. So my idea is that, so first of all, stepping back a bit, he, he's, uh, he's writing a journal, a monthly journal from about, I think it's 1776 to 1800. And his job is a palace guard, a, a, a guard of the viceroy. and um, what, so what he's like technically known as is a alabadero, and halberdier. I, I struggle with the English word since I never say that type of word. Um, so, so he's, you know, he's an armed guard of the Viceroy. He's a person in a, you could say a kind of law enforcement or palace guard. So um, now let's see the second part of your question. Remind me of it real quick.
2: No problem. So, how does this compare to sort of a normal level of exposure to violence in the time period? So, how how much uh, in terms of just the number of executions he's seeing, the amount of crime he's thinking about, what kind of uh, how does he compare it to maybe the average resident of Mexico City? I know norms and averages can be difficult uh, to to come up with in a historical setting, though.
1: Yeah, he. So he, uh, I so he presents all of these executions in, um, month by month. And what, what really surprises me, and I don't think it's because I'm a bad historian because I'm pretty sure it hasn't been commented a lot by, by any other historians for the last 150 years that it's so surprising that there's so much, uh, um, death, so many death penalties. I, I mean, that was very surprising to me. So, I do wonder, because his source has been a printed source since the mid-19th century, so I really do wonder why why it's so unused, it, it's almost not used. I feel like it's just a fluke, so he did his handwritten journal, it was printed in the 19th century, uh, along the lines of with other things, we'll talk about other, other type of sources that relate to, to crime. Um, And, you know, then it was reprinted in a modern edition in the uh, recent years, you know, only 10, 15 years ago or so. So it's actually a very accessible journal and we have so few journals um, to use. So that that, it's a very um, valuable source. And yes, he lists them all. He doesn't he's just listing them in a in a diary, a private diary form. So he's not doing it. Um, To give an account for necessarily for anybody except for himself, which in itself is really interesting and could be a topic for any number of of fields within our Latin American studies. Right. And what I was thinking about before is that when he introduces the this the Dongo murders, he I try to make the comparison with um, Bernal Diaz del Castillo the idea that I've never, even in fiction, I've never heard of such a thing. And that's like the type of phrasing he used. So that, that answers your, the second part of your question where it's like, he, his first thought in describing it is this is a shocking case, a never before seen case. I mean, that that's his opinion. We don't have to say, Oh, well, what about this? Like that, that's, that's pedantic and not the point. So for him as an observer, of Mexico City, a good observer. He observes a lot of interesting things. Um, that's his reaction, and that's how he chooses to write it in his private diary. So that's where it is kind of this crime of the century. And then uh, again, because he's writing privately, he doesn't um, he doesn't uh, talk about the crowd necessarily. There are occasions who, who are viewing it, you know, to answer your question as to what do people see. He doesn't specifically say, you know, only five people showed up for the executioner. it was a huge mob of a thousand people showing up. You know, he doesn't say that, but he does occasionally give little hints about um, the crowd's reaction to things. Very small, very small, because he's writing about what interests him. And if you think about his job as a palace guard, you know, what would interest him would perhaps be these uh regal sanctioned activities and kind of for whatever reason, he wants to keep a record of of them. And it's actually pretty subtle. you know sometimes he says people you know cheer and um, cries of joy and praise for viceroys that commute executions, which is a very interesting idea to think maybe the people didn't like all these executions. I mean it's a period of 25 years or so of about 250 executions. I mean that is a lot in a and it covers a broader area uh, than just you know Mexico City crime, of course because it's, it's a broader region and really what they're focusing on is the highway, uh, the highway bandits, you know, and that makes a lot of sense in the longer history of Mexico, of course, right. Um, Especially 19th century, as as I think we talked about in the last podcast. Um, So yeah, I, I think that people witnessed a lot of gruesome executions, you know, again, it's always a choice. Just like today, do you want to engage with certain things of this nature that are that are spectacles that are put on by whatever entity within your society or not? You know, some people could just ignore them completely because it's not something that they want to. But others might have attended religiously. You know, we 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 can't know that uh, as far as what I've ever read in the historiography, um, because, of course, the executions, which are gruesome, and I, and I do have a chapter that puts them in great detail for anyone who likes that kind of thing, uh, I, I, you know, they're broke in their, their violence, uh, very um, bizarre punishments even. But the, that doesn't even include the, the enormous coffles of men sent into, um, into military service which is a type of violence if you're chained together and sent uh, to walk long distances to serve in forced military. Or even more common, and that's hundreds of people, even more common is the um, public lashing processions, which are way more than I never knew before, ever knew before, in terms of studying the Holy Office of the Spanish Inquisition for about 15 years uh, consistently, that um, yes, there's huge processions of people getting publicly lashed. So it's just To me, I I would really like readers broadly to know that this city is much more violent than I've ever known it to be. There's much more state-sanctioned violence that I was aware of having read on this topic for 25 years or even 30 years. So I think that's a pretty important point to make for for historians in our field, you know.
2: Yeah, and I, I think, especially as a 20th century historian, sometimes we can get absorbed in the, the conceit of state violence being a 20th century phenomenon, when clearly it's not. And I think that your answer there does a great job of setting up that this book is about a particular murder, in some ways, a, a particularly a noteworthy bloody affair. Uh, but on the other hand, it's embedded in this atmosphere of violence and a spectacle of violence that that's quite normal. Mm-hmm. So the final part of the introduction that you get into that I think is very interesting and I think opens up this book to a popular audience, I, I think so, uh, is that you prob- you think about and problematize true crime as a genre. And you argue uh, that this is an example of the true crime genre. And uh, I know you've been interested in appearing on True Crime Podcast to, to talk about this. I hope that, this, that that works for you if it hasn't already. And you point out how this genre and crime reporting generally play an important role in the project of modernity as they do a couple of things. They portray criminals as sort of beasts or irrational beings, victims as a collective and universal subject, and that state authority and surveillance is an effective and necessary force in a modern society. And so what role do you think this Dongo case played in the modernization, quote unquote, of old Mexico?
1: Yeah, I I think that uh, is really a theme that I wanted to double down on because I know true crime is just ridiculously popular and, and I partake in it too. I'm certainly not judging anybody who does. I enjoy it a lot myself. Um, And also, like, I kind of lump together, you know, like sort of detective stuff, true crime, like, it's sort of all blends, like, you know, I mix things, I might listen to a true crime podcast, but then listen to it, watch a detective show on TV. To me, that's a very similar uh, genre. So I'm kind of linking those together. And and Gomez, who we just spoke about, to me, he's kind of, his his first writing about this, the first day he took the pen and said, a terrible murder took place that, that we've never heard of before. That to me is the birth of Mexican true crime right there, because he said, he's writing a diary. I just experienced this terrible murder. What is that if not true crime? Right. And he describes it. Right. So to me, it's like at that moment in 1789, true crime was born in Mexico. And perhaps there's earlier stuff too, of course, but that's a very definitive one with a very clear uh, murder, you know, uh, very shocking. Right. Um, but yeah, that, true crime is, is such an interesting genre. And I think more and more people are critiquing it, even on podcasts themselves. Um, you know, it's, it's such a, um, I, I don't want to use the wrong words here, but it's such a, it's a genre that so reinforces the status quo. And again, I'm speaking as a fan. I'm not <laughs> trying to insult anyone who, li- who likes it because you can like things that that you also don't like, you know. You can have a mixed feelings about things that, that you really enjoy, right? And uh, because if you and I learned this from the sources that I cite, you know, all kinds of very interesting, um, more like cultural studies, theoretical writings, uh, and also uh, Mexicanists, especially literally literary scholars who've written about the genre of crime broadly in Mexico itself, as written by Mexicans, right? But it, it reinforces the status quo because, like you like you framed this, um, it, it, it likes to focus on the psychology of the criminals, which somehow decontextualizes them from the historical setting. So, like what we've been talking about thus far is contextualizing them very well within the historical setting. They're completely in the historical setting. It should, although their crime was shocking. It makes sense with the level of violence and that, and that concept of conquest and brutality for material gain. That is, goes all the way back to Alcantara uh, de Miosid, um, seven hundred or whatever, six hundred years before, right? That is exactly the ideology of warriors and, and and violence that is inherent to to this society and so many societies. So they're in their world, um, yes, and the, and the, and they're not anomalies, they're not monsters, even if they are monsters, they're monsters that their society created. uh, and, And we could think about that in terms of most crimes, perhaps, right? And then of course, I know that a lot of uh, crime writers of, of all stripes, um, you know, lots of times it's ambiguity in, in both in a podcast or in a book or anything that it's ambiguous how it's solved. Right. But generally what we're seeking to read is a solution, whether we're reading a detective novel or whether we're reading a, um, a, a listening to a podcast. We want to have an investigation and a solution. And, and the Dongo murder perfectly does that because it's and I hopefully I'm not giving anything away for suspense but it's hard not to say that it was solved within two weeks and and solved and executed and everything's done the slates are clean they've purified the the society of these horrible monsters right which we know that that that's absurd because they're continuing to kill people you know right in the Sokolov all the time that there's no stop in the violence right and uh and then of course you know you can never forget that only 20 years later is is insurgency. So you can never forget that, right? <laughs> that that that's a we know we can't. They wouldn't have predicted that, but there it is, right? Um, so I think it I think it was very useful, and I go into great depth in this and that in, the, in um, really towards the end of the book. But it's really useful to see how 19th century writers after insurgency and the formation of the Mexican Republic dealt with this crime because. writing about it because these classic, classic historians, writers, commentators, even fiction writers really doubled down on the solution concept of it. So it really seemed like they were praising the vice regal justice system as fantastic, effective, should be emulated. And that's important. We have to see the politics behind true crime. You know, even as we enjoy it, we need to think, wait a minute, what is this saying? Um, and I think that's something really important to keep in mind, you know um, as we consume and, and enjoy true crime as so many of us do, including myself so that that was kind of my goal um, to to not you know to not make people like myself who enjoy true, true crime feel bad about it, but just to point out some of these things to kind of make you think as you read it <laughs>
2: Uh, A follow-up question to that that I think would be even more excellently discussed on a True Crime podcast (laughs) is how you tried, knowing these concerns and problems with the genre and knowing that this case lends itself to that sort of writing and narrative, how did you actively try to avoid that or bring it to the forefront? Because you say in the introduction that retellings of the Dongo story can very easily, quote, Endorse the colonial paternalism of those regal officials. So I'm curious what you did consciously to to either avoid that or or make it uh, sort of obvious to the reader that that's an issue.
1: Yeah, and the great thing is, like, our methods of academic history, where we seek contextualization, are so perfect for that because if, the more that you contextualize people within their era, the more that they're not monsters, right? So you and and this is. You know my secret goal, like, and I, I think I mentioned, it, like, come join us in the regal era. Even if you have to enter via true crime, you'll still learn a lot, and that's historical context, you know. And, and I try to make it entertaining and not too heavy with the context, so it becomes burdensome for for any reader. And I, and I do hope uh, the, the the mentioning of true crime podcast gets me some <laughs> bookings. People, please reach out on social media or whatever. And <laughs> let me know if you're interested because. I know that people love it and there's so many cases in the world and why not add this case to to the repertoire, right? But, um, yeah. And so, and then of course I also try to make the investigation really complex, which I know a lot of true crime writers do, but I don't try to portray the the judges involved and the investigators involved as, um, infallible. In fact, one of them was, was, uh, kind of investigated for a quite bizarre and serious crime himself, Uh, so that which Gomez briefly mentioned, which is quite weird, you know, um, and and almost mysterious. So they were certainly not perfect. They were no Sherlock Holmes, you know, of incredible um, acuity. And and to me, the key thing is that um, I don't want to enforce this idea of the rational man who can take a, a a little clue here and there and just solve all society's problems. I mean that that's definitely what I, I didn't do and I don't think any historian should do, you know who's a good historian should think that this this one man or this group of men who have this incredibly uh, logical rational analytical frame of mind can solve a, a situation like this because that that is a, a super biased approach that that I wouldn't want to, you know, Advocate for as a historian, so that that's where I do think that the even the previous writings on this topic, both in the nineteenth century and more recently, need to really take care because I'm critiquing the judicial system at the same time, and that's even what I do in my my crime and history class right now, as you teach crime and law enforcement, you always have to critique it simultaneously because it's not um it doesn't solve violence in society it might even create violence in society so that that's that's why i have the that's why i was lucky to find that source to kind of back that up you know that the other source is not just the case itself
2: with that let's transition to looking at the various parts of the book uh, and I think that you demonstrate here that you can both be critical and also still write a very fun book. I mean, it's true crime, so it's 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 a criminal story, so it's gruesome, but it's fun in the way that I think that genre can be. Um, the book is divided into seven subsequent parts, and each one of those technically has chapters within them, but I think each part felt like a chapter of about 30 pages. And so let's take a stroll through these parts and give the listeners an idea of how you develop the interesting themes we've already talked about. So part one of the book covers what observers recorded about the murder. And so maybe this would be a good time for us to actually say what was the Dongo murder uh, briefly. And you organize this part into time location section titles. So some of the chapters will say, you know, 745 here or there. And it reminded me a lot of watching Law and Order. And I even sort of mentally made the little bump bump noise that like Law and Order make as it transitions from some scene to scene. So could you first tell us a little bit about the facts of the Dongo murder? And maybe facts deserve some quotations here. And then could you talk a little bit about why you chose this style of organization for this part?
1: Yeah, it was, for me, it was all about readability, creating characters and enjoying my writing. I'm really trying to, go towards a more creative writing style and, and encourage my students, anyone who works with me. I, I just feel it's really important for us to to be readable. And um and so that that's what I was trying to do there, to to make it lively, to make it about the people and the place, because that's another thing about true crime. You know, it, it helps you learn about a place very intimately. Even TV shows do that. And that's really what it's about, like those detective shows, they're really not so much about the crime, but about the setting and the people. And they just allow you to access them in a really easy, user-friendly way. So you can learn about all these interesting places and people. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Set the stage, make it engaging. Like there's all these personalities, there's all this complexity and in, in late 18th century Mexico City, that that's what I'm trying to do. Um, I've never watched Law and Order, so I guess I need to watch it. <laughs> but yeah, now I should talk about the crime for sure. So so and it's so funny because there's so many misconceptions of this crime, um, uh, uh, of diff- from different sources that you know little subtleties that people get wrong, and I hate to be like that because that's very pedantic and not attractive in true crime. But but it is about um, there's lots of false things that r- that circulate about it. But it is about uh, a house invasion for the sake of a large sum of silver pesos. Uh, Twenty-two thousand silver pesos were robbed from this house, including and as well as some merchandise like what I try to make famous—the silk stockings—and um, and and uh, so so. To get to the beginning, uh, Joaquim Dongo is a very um, prestigious merchant out of Spain, out of Seville, very classic, classic Spanish figure in, in the new world with a lot of connections and a lot of uh, different forms of power, both economic and uh, institutional Um in different ways that that aren't always super obvious right from, from first glance, but he's a very powerful man. He walks in very powerful circles. He has a, um, a staff of about 11 people in his house. Um, fortunately his nephew was, uh, a newlywed and so did not sleep at the house this night or he would have been killed, but, um, Dongo's uncle or brother, I'd have to go back to the case. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's in there correctly in the book. Um, was murdered. Uh, several of his servants were murdered. Um, so these are all plebeian people. Uh, four of them were women. And of course, Dongo himself, his coachman, his page, a messenger who happened to be there. They were all murdered in cold blood <laughs> with machetes in a very brutal, rapid fashion. Um, and so in that part, I do describe, uh, I described the early morning and how people, um, found out about it gradually because the, the murderers, uh, ran away in a, uh, they stole Dongo's coach because they had so much stuff, 22,000 pesos in silver is actually like very large load to simply carry. So they had to gradually stack it all into the coach and they took the coach. Um, after they killed these 11 people, the last person they killed was Dongo himself because he came in late with his coachman or maybe his coachman was the final, final person they killed. Um, and, uh, um, you know, Dongo was in his mid seventies. So he was probably a little bit, you know, weaker than some of the young men that they killed or even the younger women. Um, so yeah, they went away and that, and they, they set the coach free. So the mules were just kind of wandering around town and that's how it was initially discovered because people in the street very early in the morning were like, "Whoa, what are these mules? You know, this is obviously an elite, an elite person's coach. Like that's a very weird thing to see on the street, wandering around with no coachman. And, um, so that's how it was initially discovered. So that's what I try to narrate, like the build up to the discovery, and, and then the, how the investigation starts, and um, with and the entry of various people into the house as they see it, and the description by what would be like medical examiners uh, of the of the corpses that they find, um, which is is gruesome, and they're described in, in, in detail in a kind of a medical way. Um, you know, they basically um. In my opinion, uh, they were killed rather rapidly. The goal of the killers was to, you know, get the money and leave. Um, the killers posed as law enforcement to get into the house, and that's a classic move we know these days from from you know FBI analysis of <laughs> of, of, uh, uh, of uh, serial killers and whatnot. That that they they do dabble in law enforcement, and that's the same with the, the lead person in this gang. Um, And, um, yeah, so, so they, they wanted to get in and out, in my opinion, others might disagree quickly. So they practiced, you know, using a machete very powerfully and all of their wounds were directly to the head. So they, um, basically cut the people's head in half or thirds instantaneously. So yes, there might have been some reaction to that. It was a very large house. There were many people in it. Every single person was killed. So I think that, um, you know, they, they, May have you know, kind of uh, tortured uh, the the people, the servants briefly before they killed him in order to figure out where the money was hidden, where the keys were, et cetera. Um, they you know they they ransacked through the house to find these bags of money. Um, as as Dongle was an international merchant, he had this on hand. Um, so so yeah, it was it was very gruesome very deliberate and fast, in my opinion. Again, I've heard others say differently, but I think that if it had been prolonged, they may have been interrupted. So I just think that their goal was just to instantly kill as quickly as they could with very sharp machetes handled in a very violent and strong fashion, right to the head.
2: So We and we won't spend too much time meditating on it here because you you do some great work with this in the book but for people who think about violence there's so many details there that stand out the the jump to lethal violence rather than any sort of non-lethal strikes the attacking a face is usually a pretty big psychological barrier for people Um, and then just the unfathomable amount of money. Um, I don't remember. Maybe I should remember after reading your last book off the top of my head, The Daily Wages, but this is just hundreds and thousands of magnitude of what most people interact with in terms of currency.
1: I'd call it roughly a couple million. If yeah. You're really roughly. Really roughly.
2: <laughs> um, <so> every <laughs> and, and, and every detail of this case lends itself to, to being grandiose. So with that, let's look at part two of the book that follows, or sorry, part two, there we go, part two of the book that gives readers context and background on the society, the institutions, and the personalities of these Mexican city institutions, especially the courts and the viceroys at the end of the 18th century. And so I'm curious uh, how you wrote this section knowing, I mean, I know that this is an academic book and it is up to historical writing standards, but I think you also wrote this a bit with a popular audience in mind. Um so how did you go about writing this context knowing that you have those goals of not falling into some of the pitfalls of true crime and and writing for a popular audience because I think some of our historical and academic writers might be who are listening might be curious about how you go about writing that historical context.
1: Yeah, so I tried to keep it pretty sparse on kind of the the rabbit holes that that we enjoy going down. So I tried to keep it pretty sparse, pretty pretty light you know and so again I, I i do of course fear that that critics will say it's weak in some way but i hope that i've proved proved my metal and past works that they know i'm not a dilettante you know i <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a good especially in my last book you know it had a thousand footnotes close. so it's like there's a little bit lighter on the footnotes a little bit lighter on um on um you know in-depth sources but the sources are absolutely there um i tried to again make it about the people so i tried to give a little background on mexico city focused on the victims and how they might have lived their their daily lives and that speculation but it's drawn from i think some some good work especially what i really enjoyed reading is is sources produced by mexican scholars who write on demography and who write on the um the city architecture and this kind of thing. So those are amazing people who've thoroughly studied the, the census from this era. There's all the books that I cite are that kind of thing where it's like the the norm for, for, um, you know, for how people lived how they were grouped in their households, how they came in from the, from the countryside to work, all those kinds of things I, are easily. And of course there's, I think we've talked about this before, like there's so much great historiography on, um, late 18th century urban life, you know, urban life around 1800 in Mexico City, because there are so many sources. So I use those dissertations and published so many great sources to use on that, that, that I was familiar with from my my last book, of course. Um, and yeah, again, it's focusing on the people. So I kind of did an old fashioned thing where I went through the viceroy's, you know, and, and just sort of gave their biographies. And, you know, the court part was kind of complicated because the courts are complex, but I hope I gave a good overview that, that people will find useful because because the, there's so many overlapping courts and they're and they're changing a lot at this time period. So yeah, the idea was, you know, readers, if they're interested in this, they do want background, they will enjoy background, but they don't need, um, you know, I don't need to do 50 pages on each court like that. That's really, I think possibly going to lose some readers. I don't know, but I was, um, you know, hoping to make it just as an overview. And, and to me, I don't know that there's Quick place to look for good information about those things. So I'm hoping that'll also be you know useful for people if they're just like oh I just want to check on some details about the viceroys or, or about the courts. Like I hope it'll be useful for people to go back and and see that um, you know because while it's not perhaps the most in depth history writing that you could find, it's it's a good overview you know. So it could possibly serve people um, in different you know in different levels of, of Mexican history knowledge, right? Yeah, so it's meant to be engaging um, and give context is the goal.
2: Well, I think it certainly accomplishes all of those. And then when I was thinking about academic writing too, I was imagining the number of transatlantic studies of institutions and norms and cities that exist and how many people who maybe only want to stop in Mexico City for a moment might find this work really quite helpful and, and enjoyable as a comparison point.
0: That'd be great.
2: Let's look at the next part, which is part three. And this follows the, the diligent figures of state who investigate, carry out the, the normal processes that are supposed to occur to, to solve a murder like this. And then, like you said, within a very short period of time and with very famous single clues or, or things that might lend themselves to that kind of uh, writing, solve the case. So could you talk a little bit about how the investigation was carried out? And I'd also love to hear um, if you have any notes about what this looked like in the archive, in terms of where these documents are and and how they were gathered or collected?
1: Yeah, basically, they're just gathered into basically two big case files. That's what I looked at. Again, I I think a person who is trying to do a very dense, you know, doorstopper academic book could do a lot more. And I I welcome a person to do that, you know, where they go very deeply into, into any you know, the idea, any tangential material, that was not my goal. You know, it was just really stick on this case on these two case files that detail the process. Right. And the fun thing about it, which I tried to clarify in the book was like, basically what I'm doing is just sort of putting it in order, a readable order. So what I read, of course, as historians would know is, is kind of chaotic. And I have to figure out, the time frame and, and who's involved and why they're involved. Like that's my job. But so I'm just giving it as a narration. Um, and I don't want to give away too many details because that's kind of the fun part of, of the details of the investigation. But I think there are a lot of really interesting details. And as we said before, I try not to get into the one uh, super helpful clue that one genius man thought of, because that's a, that's a, a cliche that I'm not interested in. And that of course has been done over and over again for this case since for literally 200 years <laughs> so it certainly wouldn't be an original approach to focus on this one clue which again I won't say because you should read the book people <laughs> out there but um but yeah there's very many clues there's there's a number of people involved there's for example indigenous people um, who are hired by the court to dig up the weapons from basically a drainage ditch a sewer you know there's there's relatives of the murders who kind who come in, they're servants of the murders who come in, some lie, some tell the truth, some are super mad at the murders because of course they're not great guys in their private life either. So there's all kinds of things like that. There's um the murders love to hang out at um cockfighting. So the the manager of the local cockfighting ring comes in and talks about stuff. You know, they're pawning things, like it's very well known in the historiography. The pawn shop owners come in, you know, This the knife sharpeners come in. There's all different witnesses. There's a huge array of people who come in and there's local authority figures from all around the viceroyalty who are participating in, in some way or another in this. There's messengers, there's all kinds of people. So I do try to just go through that and just create the narration because it is, I think, a page turner if you enjoy that kind of thing to, to see. And of course, the confession process I think it gives you, you know, of course, we don't know exactly what was said. It is a little bit of a the scribe is, you know, trying to do his best to write notes, but he can't capture everything that's said. But it does give you a sense of how psychological interrogatory techniques can work in this era, which is fascinating. You know, of course, the Holy Office of the Inquisition was great at that, too. But I think you see it a little bit here, which is a lot of fun for the reader, I would say, um, to see how a judge can force a confession, not through violence, but through sort of intellectual and psychological manipulation. I think that's quite interesting to read. That to me is more interesting than a clue, you know? (laughs) Um, So so yeah, that's what I tried to do there and hoping to make it a page turner for people.
2: Well, I think it definitely feels like a, a page turner. And I love the way you bring to the forefront those processes of how that that I think often true crime or or crime and policing TV shows often leave out. And I think people who enjoy this genre will find those facts interesting and and find them to be enriching additional material. Mm-hmm. The next part of the book, part four, pauses the plot, so to speak, a little bit just to give context and background information on major characters of the case. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, oh, actually, in these criminal stories, this is often the point in the show or in the story when we back up and do like a flashback or something like that. So it actually felt appropriate. <laughs> um, and you give background information, especially on on the titular dongo, the victim, the primary victim or initial victim of it. And the rogues you uh, your terming, who killed him. And you conclude this part by connecting the murder to notions of honor, which scholars of this time period know play a very large role in how we think about this time period. So could you talk a little bit about how you describe these people and then why you make the choice of describing them as characters rather than maybe as historical figures or another terminology that, that other scholars might, might reach for? Because I think that's a very interesting and deliberate choice. And what sort of understandings uh, that we gain from this biographical background and approach?
1: Yeah, to to be honest, I, I I may have had a thought process about characters, but I can't remember it. I mean, to me, it's like, I guess it's just kind of a way that I think about people in history that, that I I think of them, not that I'm dehumanizing them, but it's more, I'm humanizing them more like, like for me, the world of fiction and reading is so alive for me for the last 45 years, you know, 47 years since I learned to read that to me, a a character is, is so alive so to me, it, 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 it's like historical figures almost seems more boring than character to me. <laughs> so I'm trying to make them interesting, you know, and and I will say that this is a part that I wish I could have been even more speculative on, but because I, I've written about honor a fair bit, that's like kind of comfortable, easy, easy framing. But to me, when I, you know, when I listen to podcasts and they talk about, um, Motivation and character, which you know, that's the part where we're veering into not academic history, right? And I make that really clear in my writing, like this is speculation, right? This is this might be fictionalization for, for the purposes of, of creating a character and attempting to uh, speculate on their motivations, which you know we shouldn't do as, as super strict academic historians, right? But it, I listen to these, you know, kind of weird and creative podcasts where they. They try to deduce people's motivations. And so that was kind of in the back of my mind. Yeah, the the speculation about motivations is so fascinating. And I think the way that we can do that using sort of a true crime model is to think very carefully about the crime and what, what what they actually did. So what they actually did, you know, was, as I previously described, was brutally murder these people. Well, who are these people? Why were they so angry at these people? And then, of course, get the money. And so, as you said, working in this time frame, we can't help but to think of honor. And we know very well that that money and wealth is an aspect of honor. It isn't even the most important, as I know you would know well, but it's an important aspect of showing that you're an honorable man. And that's the essence of being a man at that time with whatever your stature, right? And these are Spanish men. So they would have presumed that they would be, and there's a lot of evidence that they thought of themselves, a great deal of evidence that they thought of themselves as, as high ranking, honorable men. And they just, their lives had just kind of unraveled in these last few years. And so I think my speculation is that they, you know, of course they want money to get things back on track, but money is honor. It's not just, you know, burning through material goods in these days. Although, you know, although it is connected, um, it's a it's a complex pattern, right? But the, they look at somebody like Dongo and he's a Spanish immigrant too, just like them, like that's what they should have been. You know, he's an old man and they're relatively young men ranging in ages. Um, but then, you know, I think the most brutality, as you alluded to, you know, the, the brutal killings of people in the face and and the rage that they show, it seems like there's, you know, it's quite personal, even though they couldn't have known these people personally. So why, why such brutality? It can't just be to quiet them down immediately. Yes, that's a part, but why do, you know, why have six cuts on one person in their face, you know? And so I think that maybe they even had, they were a little angry, it's speculation I realized but they were a little angry at, at these servants because the servants would have possibly looked more more decent than them you know because and they're and you know how these all these stereotypes that that people like them would have of say indigenous or African descent people in Mexico City you know as barbarians like the very disdainful you could imagine right so these Spanish men they're generally from Basque, uh, country that two out of three you know they they would have that ethalgo pride and then to see people who could be um non-europeans living with in a nice setting actually well dressed and well fed and stable uh and, and can walk through the streets with dignity whereas i picture these men kind of skulking around you know that's my imagination but you know hiding in the shadows you know cuz they're they're evil right but but these a, a maid or a servant you know she's going to be doing okay employed by dongo because he's so incredibly rich you know it's it's not the worst job you can have in this time period so i i feel like there must have been something about that um that made them especially enraged so i just wanted to explore that and that to me was kind of maybe even one of the more creative parts to think about it um and i i as a as a reader of course i love the character development you know that's another thing that i what I think people draw, draws people to true crime and crime fiction is character development. So I try to give that to my readers because I like it too.
2: Well, I think that this section is one that really showcases the strengths, the academic strengths, not only just the enjoyable reading, but the academic strengths of these creative nonfiction uh, approaches, because I'm, I'm sort of of the opinion that something like motive you're right is, is technically not something historians try to get into unless there's real documented evidence we can engage with but i think at a practical level most writing points to motive without formally pointing into it and so why not bring it to the forefront why not really develop it for readers uh so i i think that this is a very strong section for that reason one that should really cause other historians writing it what am i losing by not writing more creatively um because I, I think you really access points here that might otherwise just would have been underdeveloped. Let's take a look at the next part, which brings us back to the, the plot, so to speak, of what happened. So these people have confessed or, or been arrested, and it follows the consequences of the murder, including the executions and then ensuing, I sort of thought of them as public safety reforms or the invention of policing and the night watchman, as, as you talked about in your last book. So, how, so in this, you, you set all of this in the context of justice in Mexico City evolving in the context of enlightenment era and bourbon era reforms. And so how was justice evolving and how did public safety and notions of justice change sort of because of this murder?
1: Yeah. And certainly that's covered in my, in my book from 2022 that I mentioned before. Um, And of course we have the arrival of the uh, uh, very, very famous and highly praised Viceroy Reviajedo, who's known as the, you know, the, um, Basically, the the den, the, defense, uh, the vindicator of justice, he actually has that nickname. So really what that means in simple terms is like more aggressive, violent actions by the state. And so a lot of people, as we talked about before in the last podcast on the Enlightened Patrolman, you know, they think of the Night Watchman as, as this like... Very effective surveillance, and my argument is really the opposite for them because they're just absolute lowliest street patrolmen who have no power whatsoever, no weapons, are constantly mocked, et cetera. Like they are not the target; they should not be the target. The target should be those courts, you know, the Audiencia, the Acordadas, the the Sala de Crimen. Those courts that are at that highest level, and the vice mayor himself. Uh, that are doing these constant horrific executions, which actually, uh, if memory serves from the statistics provided by Gomez, they're they're pretty much peaking in the, these years just after this. So yeah, the retribution was horrific. It wasn't about oh wow, I'm watching you get drunk. It's about I'm executing you know a dozen people <laughs> in the most brutal, gruesome fashion, or I'm sentencing. 100 people to la- public lashings like it is really obvious and cruel and we we should disabuse ourselves of any kind of jovial <laughs> figures in terms of of the, these viceroys like th- this is a very bloody violent gruesome era in in Mexico City history a- and I don't take this path in this book but i mean it's no wonder that people might've said, you know, what, what is happening in our society? This is, and again, the, the little glimpses that Gomez gives us of people protesting this, this brutality, public torture, display of body parts, which was what was done with the Dongo killers, you know, people saying, because, you know, every plaza has a church on it. I'm walking into mass and I see this horrific display of, uh, of, of limbs of an executed criminal, you know, is this Christian really? And then, of course, the church in a very interesting, complex fashion is is intertwined in this. And they're actually the ones trying to temper it, as is so often the kind of um, what we what we see in the historiography. You know, there, there's this like, OK, we're, we're you know, uh, going against what people, of course, the stereotypes like we're actually trying to be. little bit kinder and gentler than, than the state, you know? Um, and that is, that is appear to be the case here where, where they do try to, um, help criminals who are being executed, uh, and they, and, and quite bizarre, I think, um, perhaps to a modern reader would be that these, the, in this section, you learn that these, these murders had a very dignified funeral. So that, that's part of it. So it's a very complex society, but certainly in terms of justice, I would say, Getting more brutal, more strict, more vindictive. And that's where it's very really interesting too in the in the last part that the um that the 19th century, you know, national period writers really praise this and, and basically say, we need to emulate this because they feel like their new republic is chaos. So we need to crack down harder and be more like Revi Yah, who I'm not sure if they know it or not, but, you know, was executing a very large number of people. <laughs> so it's it's just fascinating to me. Um, and again, it's the context. So so by solving this crime, you did not solve violence in this society by any means. And that's something we should all think about. Right.
2: There we go. Uh, I think that these consequences are are really interesting because you. Like you said, you, you keep to the forefront the social causes of it. And because you've so well set up that the inequity and the violence of, of this place and time is sort of what produces these kinds of crimes, I, I think it very clears to the reader that this ultra-violent solution is not a solution in any meaningful sense. So let's take a look at the next part of the book which lays out the social and cosmological factors, or at least I thought of them as cosmological factors that shaped how people at the time understood violence and crime, including the general pervasiveness of violence that we've, that we've already discussed. And then apparent omens. And these these are ones I hadn't heard of before, so I I found them very interesting. Like the surprising appearance of Aurora Borealis, or what's probably Aurora Borealis, in 1789. This, in combination with the book, Mexico and the Time of Cholera, really made me think, like, oh my gosh, I would feel like the world was ending if I lived in Mexico City at the end of the 18th century. And then, of course, the unearthing of pre-colonial stones, of stones from indigenous societies, from the location, and how these would have informed a sense of crisis or sense of violence, uh, for people at the time period, so could you tell us a little bit how these factors played a role in people's understandings of crimes like the Dongo murders and the executions?
1: Yeah, this is again where I, I would have even been more imaginative if I if I could. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it's like there's a lot as you expressed uh, pretty much what I would say as well. There's a lot coming at people in Mexico City in this era. I mean, there's not only do they have this constant side of violence within their society, within the city, that's only about 120,000. So it's not like it's so enormous that you could totally avoid it. Um, uh, they, they had um, any number of devastating earthquakes, which again, this is Gomez is such a good source for the daily life. You know, for, for, for certain years, there was horrific earthquakes regularly, you know, five or six a year. Um Yes, the Aurora Borealis, uh, not long after the execution, um, and I don't know, you know, it's me taking perhaps a modern thought that that the unearthing of these Aztec monoliths would have affected people, but it just does seem kind of coincidental, you know, that they're rising up out of the Sokolo and... and and it's like, we're, I don't know, again, to get a little woo-woo, but it's like, don't forget us, you know? <laughs> it's really a, a place for me to be imaginative, right? And, and I just think, and I'm, again, for the for the reader, this is what's going on. This city is very exciting and confusing for people. And when, when these events happen, earthquakes, Aurora Borealis, um, natural disasters of that kind, you know, the church comes out and talks about it, and then you have the more enlightenment approach. Saying, we know this is an Aurora Borealis, we know what that is. Here's you know what we understand about why it happened. This is not God's wrath, those those debates that, that are well known um, from even a century earlier, uh like the Padre Quino and Siguense Gongora debate about the comet, you know, all that stuff has been talked about a lot in Mexico City for for a while, over a hundred years. But so it's still there. And and, and just the confusion that people might have felt if, if they were at all engaged with it. I mean, I guess you could say it's similar to sometimes how we feel in, in more modern eras where it's just like there's so many different things happening. And I'm so confused about what's going on with my society that I live in. Like, I don't know what to make of all these things. You know, I'm just trying to live my life. But now there's an earthquake. and You know, how, how do I even go through my daily life with all these things happening. I think it must've felt pretty um, disruptive for a lot of people. And then, yeah, I couldn't, because of the location and the timing being only about roughly 20 months in a period of 18 to 20 months after the executions that again took place in the Sokolo, you have those three, the most three most famous Aztec monoliths rising to the surface and and especially that um, what we know is that um, Tizoc stone being a sacrificial stone with a you know a, a gutter that looks like where the blood might have flowed out of, uh, and also you know all the all of them looking pretty gruesome. Other than the calendar stone, a little bit less so, or, or the sun stone. Um, you know, it, it's just like it, it is a little bit cosmic. And again, I apologize for being a little bit mystical like that. But it's like these things are all about human sacrifice, and, and human sacrifice is ongoing in this exact same plaza. So, I don't know, it's something to think about. <laughs> that That's kind of where i you know, because as a historian, maybe I need to write a novel or something and make it a little bit kookier, I don't know.
2: <laughs> but... I... I, I think that that sort of thematic layering, to, to almost do a pun here, uh, I, I think really enriches this and I think gets at something of how it would have felt, maybe, or, or at least opens up the possibility for us to remember all of these would have been experienced by the same people in a way that uh, I think a normal monograph, again, might lose. Uh, because how do, you, how do you write historically about the appearance of the Aurora Borealis, especially if there's limited sources about it? But we should probably still dwell on it. As, as someone who's thinking historically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would, it's always big news here in Minnesota when the Aurora Borealis is visible and people make meaning of it, even sort of with our 21st century understandings of it. With that, let's look to the final part of the book, part seven which follows the immediate afterlife of the murder. And as you've mentioned, it's it's been well written about or discussed about in a sort of popular sense for, for a long time period. And you cover different forms of accounting of it, like anonymous accounts, novelizations, which sort of made me imagine what would a 18th century Agatha Christie in Mexico City be like. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how the crime of the century continued to live on in the years after the case closed?
1: Yeah, I mentioned already how... Um how some of those very classic, uh, uh, you know, Mexican writers of the early national period talked about it in terms of reforming their own system. And it's, they made that very clear. Um, and that's really interesting. I guess what I, what I, so to, to shift off of that a little bit, um, and, and I do try to do my best to, to have every aspect of that. And of course, one last thing on that is it could be, um, the origins of, of that nota roja style that Pablo Picado talks about really well in his book, History of Infamy, which is super inspirational to me for this topic. Um, and I'm so happy that he could endorse this, this book um, or my previous book, hopefully read this one too. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, um, yes, yeah, so, so that nota roja, that, that kind of uh, um, tabloid violence in Mexican journalism that's extremely violent and if there's any listener out there who hasn't seen it you know it's it's very surprising for people who aren't used to seeing that level of violence on the front of newspapers and on tv shows and whatnot but to the present day um but but what really interested me uh you know i did my best with all that kind of material but um i as i said i'm a huge fan of novels and literature i have a master's degree in, liter- in, in Latin American literature and Spanish literature um is the, is the novels that came later in the 19th century. And so, um, I actually translated, uh, the one by, um, Jose Tomas de Cuellar. I translated it into English and I kind of put it as like a super cheap or practically free online resource. It's called the sin of the century. And that was written in 1869. Um, so it's really, and then another novelist who is, um, uh, kind of odd for the time period uh, of that area around 1870, um, a conservative Catholic that was unusual in that time period, given that Maximilian stuff that had just happened. He also wrote a, a more conservative church, sort of church focused interpretation of, of Dongo in a novel form, which I could barely get through because it was a thousand pages and I'm not kidding. And, and it was, you know, just one ginormous sermon, but the Quayar one, I think is quite interesting. And I highly recommend it to readers. If you want to read the Spanish or if you want to read my translation, um, because it's really about critiquing church education critiquing um uh gender and sexuality norms although the both authors really you know double down themselves on the gender and sexuality norms of their era right which are in my opinion quite different from 100 years earlier i'm not an expert on 19th century mexico but that's what it seems from from my work on transactional sex and whatnot in my 2018 book but um yeah they uh I I I wanted to see the fictional aspects, and and again, I recommend that book. They create characters; um, they're influenced by uh, uh, trends in in European literature. You know, Zola and Flaubert and those type of people. Um, So they're they're quite interesting novels that deal with this. And I and um, what I think is, you know, until uh, the Prophirian era starts, where there is this strong dictatorial leader. Who, who is having, you know, carrying out more of this uh, kind of oppressive justice. Um, they are, I think that thinkers, intelligentsia in Mexico are thinking, what can we take from the vice royalties that, that's useful? And then they, it seems like they sort of get it. And then, of course, they don't want it anymore. So they stop writing about dongo. They stop writing about dongo because for them, it's a case study of effective, harsh justice. And I think that's not an interesting case study as you approach the Mexican revolution, that that's no longer something that has popular appeal for a novelist or readers. Right. So I just, I, you know, for, for the, for the kind of popular reader, which I hope I do have some, I think that one might be a little more tough going, but it's, you know, the idea of these are different texts. So it kind of gets more back to what we as historians, you know, should be doing, I believe.
2: (laughs) Well, I think it's a, Important to remember what feels like to to history to most people because I know some true crime podcasts cover maybe the '90s and I think there were a lot of my students that feels like a historical period. It doesn't feel like a recent period. Um, so maybe you'd be surprised at, at what they're willing to go through. Before we go, as we're closing up here, can you tell us about what you're working on next?
1: Yeah, you know, I it's been a little bit of a struggle for me. I'll confess, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, because you know, I did do this research pre-COVID. You know, it takes a couple of years to write and a couple of years to wait for publication. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I had so much great material and a holdup in my house. I was able to, to write on it, uh, even with my daughter having school from home and whatnot. Um, still, somehow that that hiding, you know, <laughs> in, in the house helped. So, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit at loose ends. I don't know if we could. Listeners, help me, whatever Hive mind, something. but I mean, I have a lot of ideas. I kind of feel like now that I've crossed into this this more imaginative stuff, it's a little difficult for me going in confessorial mode here. Like it's a little difficult for me to go back, although I know how to do it. I just I just want to have it's intimidating to write as an academic historian when you've written so much and, and you know, it's the depth of, of, of say footnoting and this kind of stuff that, that I, that I want to achieve is sort of intimidating to restart that. So I just, yeah, I, I'm really thinking creatively about all these, again, characters that I've met along the way. And if I could somehow bring them together in more of a novelistic fashion, of course, I have no knowledge about how to do that. So I feel very ignorant and, and I should be humble about any ability to do that but i mean i would love to write something more in a fictional vein if i could ever figure that out but having these type of people having having dongo you know maybe from the perspective of of the newlywed who wasn't killed maybe from the perspective of his wife and i you know i've spent um four books looking at late 19th, late 18th century Mexico city. So I feel like I know a good amount about it. <laughs> and, and I, ha, you know, I, I certainly have prepped myself to, to write something fictional. And then I also think about, um, uh, I also really enjoy the figure of Diego Duran from the 18th century via the leader Morelia, who is a famous architect. I think he's a really interesting character I'd like to bring to life. I have thought about the, the figures that I've written about in my 2013 book out of Cartagena and I, I fortunately looked it up and there has recently been a novel published um, about the, the, the witch trials of Paula de Egulus. So I'm thinking maybe if that author would want me to do a translation, I'd love to do that. I've asked him, I've reached out to him. His name's Marco Revolio. Um, So I would love to, to translate that officially uh, with his publisher and give an English version. It's a novel called Alleluia, which was Paula's uh, nickname. She's sort of a very, very famous author. Um, convicted so-called witch of the 17th century. So yeah, those are some of the things I'm mauling around, but I certainly appreciate any feedback and and I'm being vulnerable here that I'm I'm struggling to find a topic and I want to write about something because it is, I think, therapeutic for, for some of us.
2: Well, I think a place of vulnerable humility, but also creativity and interest is a wonderful place for a next book to grow from. Um, <laughs> well, that's, certainly more than the inverse of any of those. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's definitely where it's definitely where I was going from. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you so much for your time today, Nicole.
1: Yeah, thank you.